Podsequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. And Podsequentialism is, of course, an outgrowth of the Pop Sequentialism traveling exhibitions of comic book art of the modern era and also the blog of the same name. And the book that I published uh, with Last Gas Press that uh, was cataloging that show, which we still have a few copies of. So if you are so interested, you can give us, uh, send us an email or contact us on social media. And I can uh, point you in the right direction as how to obtain a copy yourself. And I'll even sign it for you if you want. The uh, podcast is also generally recorded here at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles in West Hollywood on Sunset Boulevard and also sponsored by La Luz de Jesus Gallery in Los Feliz inside the Waco Soap Plant Superstore and by Gallery 30 South in Pasadena, Gallery 30 South, which is a new endeavor that I actually own with my wife and you should check out her jewelry. She makes jewelry under the name of Adnohia, which is A-D-N-O-H-I-A. One of her lines is called Insomnia. And uh, she actually just got a piece uh, accepted into a museum in Copenhagen. So I want to give a big congratulations and a shout out to my wife. So I've noticed lately on social media, and it may be because, you know, just coming out of Comic-Con, there have been a lot of trailers kind of making the rounds uh, some of the officially released Marvel product and one of those trailers was of course for the upcoming Black Panther movie and so there's been a lot of chatter online about black superheroes and how well this may or may not fare as far as numbers box office numbers and so I looked into it and I went kind of down the rabbit hole and, and checking out a lot of numbers and and what movies had made money and what movies hadn't and, you know, what categorizes a black film and and a lot of these things. And I always want to be sure when discussing issues of race that I, I want to be sure that I, I admit that I am, you know, a, I'm a, a white guy. You know, I grew up in a a fairly middle-class family and my point of view and my worldview is definitely built around my experience. That having been said, I do talk to many people and I have many friends who are not white guys that grew up in the middle class in the East Coast. And I don't think that that is necessarily anecdotal. I think that, you know, I've lived in a lot of different places and I'm I'm able to get a kind of consensus view having talked to a lot of people. But I also want to be sensitive to the notion that I do not speak for uh, anybody except myself. I'm, I'm not the official, the official spokesperson for uh, middle-class white guys any more than I am the spokesperson for Asian women or African-American men or women. And um, also want to address the fact that in many conversations I've had with um, friends of mine, people of color, that uh, the term black is used as... E- equally as often as the term African-American. And so I'm going to use the term black because I think that uh, if we're talking about African-Americans, we're talking about someone uh, in North America. And um, by using the designation black, we're talking about anybody who who identifies as having come from an African diaspora, regardless of where they live in the world. And so as I get into this, I want to... um, share with you some of the data that I discovered. And in Hollywood terms, and when I say Hollywood, I'm talking about producers and studios. And when 
I have discussions with people in the industry and I've, I still have access to uh, some numbers that are maybe a little bit more difficult to, f- to find for the layperson. I still do get um, number reports from uh, some of the companies that I used to work for. I, I do have a login and I can see what's selling. I can see what the circulation is on, on media product. And there seem to be two camps for black superheroes. There are the Blade movies and there are the not Blade movies. And I say this because all three of the Blade films were successful films. Uh, Blade is a superhero character, although in, in Hollywood terms, Blade is not considered a superhero movie as much as it is considered a horror film because uh, vampires are, are the enemy in, in, in the films and Blade is himself a vampire. And because of that horror element, while it is a horror superhero it generally gets uh, categorized more often than not as a horror film and not a superhero film. But for reasons that will become evident, I'm going to classify it as a superhero film for the purpose of this discussion. Now, the last non-Blade films that starred a, a, a black person in, in the lead role, in the, in, you know, the title role for the, uh, the film, you're looking at Steel... Catwoman, Spawn, Hancock, and The Meteor Man. And all of those films were considered financial failures. They did not recoup the budget, um, and therefore not only did not recoup the budget, did not recoup marketing expenses. All of those films actually were released in an era where you could get the marketing spend information. You no longer can. The The marketing budgets are very infrequently divulged these days. And so often we may assume that a film has been successful because we'll look and we'll see that it cost, say, $30 million and it made $90 million and we can say, oh, wow, that, that was a very successful film. But when you look at the marketing and advertising campaigns, the M&A budget, it could be $60 million. You know, with a film like... Mad Max Fury Road, a lot of people consider that to be a very successful film because it made $300 million or whatnot. It actually maybe just barely made money uh, because of the amount of, of marketing and advertising. But they, as the first film out the gate in a proposed new series of films, that's considered an investment down the line for uh, identifying with the character. And it was a very popular film. It was very well received. It was Oscar nominated. And so you, you really do have to consider the value of those things in terms of comparable monetization so when you look at these films it's it's kind of unfair again to rest the failure of a film on the skin color of an actor in the role and I want to be very clear about that that it's it's not something that I think is a good thing to do but I do know that it happens and since we've had many conversations on this podcast about people of color and the perception of casting in regards to there being some racist agenda at studios by not casting people of of color in certain roles, understand that everybody is a number to studio bosses, generally speaking. I mean, there may be people in positions of power that have an axe to grind against um, one race or another. If that is the case, I've certainly never seen it, not in, in... since I've been in Los Angeles and I've been here uh, almost 30 years and have worked 
in and around the entertainment industry for most of that, that I have not seen overt racism in, in the studios in as much as a decision being made not to cast somebody because of their skin color. It's very frequently used as in a, uh, a, a talking point for someone to bring up race in films. And I think it's starting to change. We've talked about that many times on this podcast as well. There are certainly much more high-profile roles for people of color in expansions of uh, franchises, whether it be Marvel or DC or Disney or, or whatever you want to address, that there certainly is a, a higher degree of diversity casting happening and, and I'm, I'm happy to see that it can absolutely get better it should get better but without addressing the altruism of of this and just looking at the numbers it would be easy for a bean counter to look at the failures of steel and catwoman and spawn and hancock and and say you know we, we we're not getting this demographic you know I, I think that a lot of people also don't understand that when a decision is made to to cast somebody in a role, what they're looking to get is they're looking to get some of the audience that that person has established in their prior films. So if I'm going to hire Will Smith, I want to be able to tap into the audience that went to Will Smith's last movie. And if I'm casting, in the case of Wesley Snipes in the Blade films, um, and his career was sort of upended in the middle of those films because he went to jail for tax evasion. So the upward momentum that he had been building as a star of his caliber and an actor of of his talent was really sort of derailed um, in a, a really hard to recover from way. And so the whole that whole series came to an end. And so we, we don't know if if there had been more films, if they, if he had if they had been even more successful or if they had 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 additional sequels or other franchises that were developed out of it, you might have seen a Brother Voodoo film. You might have seen uh, a lot of other, you know, Marvel Knights type characters and more people of color in them. And we don't know. I mean, maybe this stuff is going to happen down the line. Certainly, we've got Luke Cage on Netflix, uh, one of the better series to come out of Marvel's television endeavors. And I think that if they were to do a a Luke Cage film that I think it, it would probably do very well. I don't think that's in their plan. I don't think they want to mix the uh, the Netflix series and the Defenders stuff with the cinematic universe stuff. But certainly there is a lot of a lot of diversity casting happening in in those shows. When we talk about Iron Fist, but um, I I want to be clear that I I don't think that it's fair to categorize a film's failure based on based on race. But if, if you've got someone who's an accountant and they're grabbing a lot of data, that's one of the things they're going to look at because they're hoping by casting a black performer to tap into a, a black demographic. They're hoping that casting this black actor or actress means they get a certain amount of a, a black audience. And the same can be said for Latinos. The same can be said for Asians. And that they're hoping to tap into the the market share that would seem to be promised by that person's films. So, when looking at a success story in Hollywood and looking in productions, the most successful black filmmakers have been the Wayans Brothers and Tyler Perry. 
And Tyler Perry is basically a walking cash register. Any film that he releases has a a completely dependable demographic that goes to the theater to watch his films. I'm not a huge fan of the movies. I don't think that um, the films are particularly good movies. I'm also completely not the demographic that Tyler Perry's going after. So my opinion does not help or hurt at all the the numbers that he's going to see in his films. But understand that that's the audience that a studio is hoping to get when they put together a quote-unquote black film. And I think it's important to understand what categorizes a black film because I think that a, a black film is a black production. So like Tyler Perry, who's directing and producing and writing his own films and has a majority black cast, that's a black film. And they're very successful films. And, you know, we've just seen with, you know, Get Out that and with uh, Keanu that you've got young, talented black filmmakers telling their own stories and doing it really well. And even a film like Get Out, which addresses race really head on and does so in a really original way for a a very effective horror film, I think that that film can only have been made by a black director. That that point of view is inherently a, a black point of view. It's a, This is a black voice making a very personal film. And one of the concerns that I have with looking at casting of roles and the usage of properties like superhero films, and one of the points that I saw recently online was a meme of, I think it was 16 faces of black performers, and it basically recast everybody in the Batman universe using a a proven box office star in the role, and it caused you know a lot of a lot of conversation, and of course the idea people are like oh yeah it'd be great if if so and so was was this character and somebody else was this character and. And of course, it's it's fun to to kind of conjecture, but understand that that's never going to happen. And it's a good thing that it's not going to happen, in my opinion. And I think it's a good thing to not have an all black Batman film, because I think inherently that character is the product of a dead white guy over 80 years ago when the character was created. It was built from a circumstance of fantasy based on an understandable reality that a millionaire is born to fight crime out of an incident where his altruistic parents who gave to charity were killed by a poor criminal. And in order for that to be able to to become a reality for a, a black version of that character, and of course now he would have to be a billionaire because of the differences in economy and the value and how far the dollar stretches and the types of devices that Batman has. But understand that uh, there is only one black billionaire in America, and that's Oprah Winfrey, and she became a billionaire in 2004. So in order for there to be an underlying realistic springboard for the character of Batman, he would have to have come from generations of wealth in order to have arrived with the worldview that he has. And that would mean in order for a a black Bruce Wayne to be realistically um, of the same 
origin story as the Bruce Wayne that we know, you know, parents killed in Crime Alley, um, that we're not there yet generationally. Like, the... The character isn't old enough yet. If you were if you were born in the era where Oprah Winfrey became a billionaire, then he would still not be Batman yet. And I think that the suspension of disbelief is reliant upon a relatable reality. And so far that reality doesn't exist. And I think if you change the origin of Batman, you change the character. But more importantly, why do we want to saddle talented black filmmakers with this inherently white mythos. I would, I mean, one of the things that I think would be great is, you know, you've got a couple um, other very, very wealthy uh, um, African-American celebrities, like, you know, Jay-Z is, is got to be worth in the neighborhood of um, $700 million. Certainly Dr. Dre and Puff Daddy are in the, in the neighborhood of 700 to $800 million. That, that's total, total worth. So they're not billionaires yet, but I mean, if if you put Beyonce, Beyonce and Jay Z together, you've got you know a billionaire couple, and they have a couple of kids, and you know if someone were to take that example and just kind of retcon it a little bit back a decade or two, I love the idea of a hip hop vigilante who comes from you know a billionaire entertainment empire, and that that'd be a really interesting tale to tell, but that guy's experience as being part of the African-American experience is going to be very different than the Bruce Wayne origin story that we've, we're have also familiar with. And I mean, at this point, that story's been told so many damn times that I'm actually kind of surprised it doesn't pop up in Marvel movies. I mean, we've seen Batman's origin retold in six movies, possibly. But... Um, so I think that when when we're addressing these 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 concerns, these issues, and these this data, that I think we do kind of a disservice to the idea of encouraging a new generation of filmmakers by saddling them with existing properties that have a lot of baggage with them. Now I think it would be great to have, you know, a a black Superman would be amazing. You know, and there's there's nothing that would change the Superman mythos if that character were black. Absolutely nothing. You know, it's it's an alien story, so it, it doesn't matter. His his origin is not altered at all by his skin color in the experience that the character has gone through in the story arc. So it's not a culture it's not a culture war issue. It's it's not a you know, it's not rooted necessarily in gender either. And you see that a lot now with characters that were created to be, you know, white male characters are becoming women characters. And I think that gender is sometimes a much easier thing to alter in a character. And and now we're seeing a lot of chatter online about Doctor Who. The casting of the of the latest doctor, uh, d- latest doctor is going to be a woman. I don't think that that character really changes much by changing gender, or and I don't think the character would change much by changing race. To be quite honest, because again, I don't think that that character's origin is rooted in a specific cultural experience, and just as it's unfair to blame the casting in a terrible movie um, for its failure. You know, I think that, you know, certainly the problem with Steel 
Well, maybe the problem with Steel was Shaquille O'Neal, but I, I don't think that the problem with Catwoman was the fact that they cast Halle Berry. Halle Berry is a, an Oscar-winning actress and um, has you know solid box office on occasion. It was a terrible film. It was it was a, a badly conceived movie. It was not a good movie. And it failed because it was garbage. And uh, Spawn was also not a very good movie and based on a comic that was really never very well written. And the only exception here, because these are all like white movies with black stars, it's the Meteor Man that becomes a kind of interesting bad example. Because Robert Townsend wrote directed and I believe produced The Meteor Man and it had a majority black cast and it was a huge failure. But understand that with Meteor Man, it was a a superhero comedy, almost a superhero parody. And so the audience that they were perhaps counting on for a superhero film is not going to turn up for a superhero parody because they feel like they're being not even pandered to. It's, it's sort of the opposite. It's like they're being made fun of. And so losing that audience was was I don't think calculated into the the concept. And I also at the time that the Meteor Man was released, understand that it was not an existing superhero, so it didn't have any upside like decades of marketing around a character. And then lastly but importantly is the fact that there was no evidence to support that the black community would go see a superhero parody film, even with a star who was on kind of a hot streak. Uh, Robert Townsend had had um, some good, simple success with a couple of films that were low budget and did well enough to warrant him getting his name thrown into the ring quite often as a guy to market properties to to get made. And as a guy who wrote and produced his own material, he wasn't really interested in taking studio jobs. He wanted to tell his own stories. But he had done I'm Gonna Get You Sucka, and he had done um, Hollywood Shuffle. And so that failure of that film was definitely uh, detrimental to his career and his upward mobility. And it took a long time for him to get something else out the gate. And that may be rooted in a a certain amount of um, prejudice and the perception of studio bosses at the time. And I can't say, you know, for sure that the, um, racism played into it or didn't. We see a lot of sexism, certainly uh, in the business. We've got a director like Mimi Leader who directed some very successful films. And while her last film wasn't as successful as they had hoped, it was still a big money making film. It's been 15 years since she's made a movie. You know, the fact that her name doesn't still get thrown out there like, hey, you know, Betty Thomas. Betty Thomas had tremendously successful comedies. I uh, didn't really have a, a big flop and certainly not a flop that cost the studio a lot of money. And yet not a name that you see uh, on the front page of Variety with a lot of development deals. And so I think that the, that, you know, the boys club aspect of Hollywood, I think, is a very real thing. And I think it is absolutely much more difficult for a woman to get a film made. But, um, you know, not addressing this kind of speculation, we do have to understand that at its, at its rawest, at its simplest, it is a numbers game. And if you're going to make a, a film that is built around a, a black superhero, you want to go after the largest black audience. 
you want to be able to count on them coming into the theater. And the best way to do that, of course, is to make a good movie, you know, to write a good script, to have, you know, quality people involved. And I think that with Black Panther, we're going to see that. I mean, the Marvel model is a pretty good model. And they got to do something that not a lot of other uh, studios got to do, which is they got to do an active test market. In other words, they got to test a character in a film without having to worry about it not coming off because the franchise was already so successful. So by by being able to put Black Panther in a Captain America movie with a, with a completely clued-in uh, theater-going population and a huge fan base and people that were actually you know quite excited about the idea of seeing Black Panther they got to test and see they they tested that film as they test every movie and the response was great people love the character if they had tested that film and the character wasn't popular they might have either scaled back his appearance he definitely would not have gotten his own film and if it had tested very poorly they would have pulled him out of the movie completely they would have written around him but um, what we're seeing is a great reception to a good performer, a well-written character, and a hopefully fascinating story. And I think that's going to create a lot of opportunity for more black superheroes. And as I said, you know, kind of uh, right out the gate, that what makes me happy about this is that understand Black Panther was created by a white guy, you know, in, in the late 60s, early 70s. And the name was, was kind of a bit insulting because it was used to capitalize on a black power movement in the United States. And it kind of co-opted by, by naming a superhero after, you know, this, um, this very, um, you know, neighborhood-centric uh, grassroots organization that had an agenda about pushing forward the the rights and opportunities for, for African-American citizens. So the fact that we have a, a black superhero created by white guys in the 1970s that has any kind of relevancy in, in the current world is amazing. And it's something that we should be pretty happy about. But what we should also be encouraging is having more black comic creators working. You know, it's there's there are some professionals in the business. There's some pencils. There's a couple of writers, and um, you know, quite a few of them have have appeared on on podcasts on this on this network. And it's it's good to see more cultural diversity behind the scenes creating comics. But there's still not a lot of new characters being created with a real specific market voice in mind. And it could be because the numbers are so low in circulation for the quote-unquote successful characters that it may not be seen as a smart business move to aim for a smaller but loyal demographic. And I hope that changes, but I hope that changes across the board because otherwise we're not going to have comics. Um, you know, if the circulation numbers start to fall even further from where they are right now, if you're not working on a creator-owned title, then there's really not a lot of money to go around. And, and I've, I've talked frequently about how little money most uh, comic book professionals make. So, you know, there's, there's power and money in creating your own thing. And if you find your own audience and it clicks and it reaches beyond uh, what might be considered a target demographic, then you've hit the big time. You know, you, you've, you've, you've reached beyond a, 
a target group to get a, a wider audience. And that happens quite frequently with, with pop culture stuff. And so, you know, I do want to be clear that I absolutely encourage and want to see more diverse entertainment, but I sort of feel that it's a fool's errand to be working on really old characters and trying to, you know, reconjecture, remake, and reboot these characters to go after a demographic that may not even be interested in comics in the first place. You know, if you look at circulation numbers, and, and it's pretty easy to get... A lot of information. Um, we we actually recorded a show on metadata that we weren't able to run. It got um, it discussed some some stuff that was a little specific, and the decision was made not to air that episode. But what we did get out of it, and I'll share with you now, is that big companies, you know, whether it's Amazon.com or whether it's you know Time Warner, they know everything about you. You're answering questions on Facebook about, you know, where you grew up and who was in your class and what your favorite things are. And these are create this is data that's really just going into marketing. And it's easy data for people that aren't your friends on Facebook to hack. You know, Chinese hackers know everything about you. The US government probably knows everything about you. And so companies are buying this information and they're they're getting your race, your age. They know what you like. They know what you buy. They know what you say you like, and they know what you actually buy. And that data creates a pretty complete picture of a consumer. And what we do know is that there aren't a the numbers of African American consumers for comic books are not consistent with the with the population of African Americans overall. So, if you have a a sample population for a specific product or a specific type of thing generally those numbers will reflect pretty closely with the full population and you can compare and we do know that the numbers are really low and it could be that those numbers are really low because no one's telling the story and um you know as that changes maybe those numbers go up but we're going to take a little break, and when we get back, we'll talk a little bit more about circulation numbers and um, entertainment percentage data. And, um, and hopefully, it, we're, we're creating a, um, a good discussion topic for, uh, for your next cocktail party. But uh, we'll be back in 60 with a word from our sponsors. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host Matt Kennedy, and our subject today is is really you know the the new viability for black superheroes that the new opportunities that are being presented because of what is already being predicted to be a very successful film, the the Marvel Black Panther film, should move the needle on the casting of more people of color in leading roles in existing entertainment franchises. But as uh, I've also been talking about, I think that there's a little bit of a drawback to being forced to work in a sort of character pool of characters that were created by white people not to be diverse 
but just to kind of cash in on whatever the fad might have been at the moment. And the idea that we're actually getting quality stories from these characters, and I, I'm not somebody who is who's going to say that you you know if you're white you can't write a black character or if you're black you can't write a white character. I'm just saying that there is a certain experience in writing that you pull from, and most of what writers write about are situations that they know, and I think that you can know a lot of things based on where you live that um, might not be reflective of your particular upbringing, so to speak. So that, um, you know, a point has been made that, you know, certain issues aren't issues of race, they're issues of poverty. That um, your economic situation is much more likely, these days especially, to be able to create a picture that a marketer can learn from than the color of your skin or even the... um, you know, your heritage. So what what people look at more often than not now is your bank account and your buying habits and, and that type of thing. So, and, and, and in a way, maybe that's a good thing too. You know, the fact that race is a less important data collection point is good. It's, it's in some ways signaling that we're, we are all just people, and I mean that we are. We are all just people, and hopefully it means that the experience for all people is, is becoming a little bit more homogenized to the degree that one, um, one group of people is at least less discriminated against than they were before, and I don't think that we have true equality, but I think that there is a step in that direction that was started um, you know, in the last... 20 years or so, but we're not quite there yet. And there's certainly a lot of problems that seem to target um, specific demographics in the population and don't necessarily target other ethnic demographics in the population. But uh, a point that uh, someone else I had been speaking to about this, um, a point that was made was to the altruism of making a decision on the future based on what is the data at hand and the data of the past. And the the term, I believe, is the is-ought comparison. And I think that that is a, a moral scale, an ethical scale, and it's not an economic scale. And when you start addressing philosophy, you have to understand that it's not necessary while the scientific method is absolutely used in philosophy it's not verifiable data it's 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 questioning a reality in order to try and find a solution to a specific problem and i think that it is a good thing to want to or to want to ought to um make things more equal to level the playing field. And I I do see it happening in increments and I hope it gets better and continues to get better. But I think that it's silly to assume that um, there isn't a lot of money riding on these things. And when you have data that you can point to and say, well, I know this from this and I know this from this, so I can make this indication, I can... I can 
make this prediction that this will will come to pass. And then if it does, then you have another set of data that you, you can look at. You can say, we thought this before, we thought it because of this, and it's been proven true again. But of course, there is no formula for success or, you know, every movie would succeed. So a lot of films that people thought that there was a market for turn out to not have a market and or they, they don't find their market or the ad campaign isn't good or the film doesn't have the quality that they hoped it was going to have when it was written on paper. Um, problems happen in production, you know, um, the, the public opinion and support for an actor or actress or director or studio can change. And when that is the case, that's absolutely going to affect the ability for that film to turn a profit. But the data that is being looked at is generally financial data and financial predictions made on data about movie going habits in core demographics based on population and location. So whether or not a movie puts a full-page ad in the local newspaper is going to depend greatly on whether or not that local population has shown support for this type of film before. And it's going to address only the portion of the population that has shown support for that film before. And they may want to get a wider demographic to show up, but they're really shooting for a specific demographic with those ads. And that's why you see different ads in different cities sometimes. It's not always a, um, a single marketing campaign. So that's also important to understand. And part of that in the marketing can make or break a movie. So if I have a film, a small film, say My Big Fat Greek Wedding, that seems like a pretty specific demographic by title so it gets a small release it starts to get noticed um certainly and this is this is true you, you can research it uh, uh greek americans went out in droves to see the film and that spike in numbers for an independent film caused by a very large uh, identifiable demographic going to the theaters got noticed so it pushed the film's place up so it wasn't maybe the number five film that opened that week. It might have been the number three film. And because of that, people pay attention to the success of a film. A lot of people, believe it or not, just go to a movie theater without even an idea of what they're going to see. And they look up and, and they, they, they think, what have you heard about that? Oh, I heard that's good. Or, oh, you know what? I heard that movie did really well last week. And they'll go and see that movie based on that information alone. And so if... A, a portion population can, can push the needle on a film so that it doesn't open outside of the top 10 or outside of the top 5 and they can get placement within the, the number 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 position, then other demographics notice that and the numbers among that other wider demographic goes up as well. So a little success becomes a bigger success becomes a huge success. And that's why when producers start putting together projects that seem to be targeting African-Americans or seem to be targeting a specific portion uh, population, um, gay and lesbian films that, um, that are marketed for, um, for a specific turnout, that they want everybody to get in those theaters that opening week so they can get a big number because then people who aren't necessarily in that immediate target demographic take notice and go see it and it becomes more successful and then it's word of mouth and then you see less of a drop off from week to week and that's considered 
you know, a, a very, a very successful film. If you have a small drop off, a few films in the last few years have had zero drop off or actually did better and were pushed into wider release. And that becomes less and less common in, in the current era, but it still does happen. And, and that can mean a big, big success for a small project with a very specific target demographic. And we certainly saw, you know, with um, with Key and Poole in, in their two back-to-back successful films that people noticed, and it wasn't a small demographic, it wasn't a, a target or a portion population that saw these films. They went wide, they got very successful. And people will say that comedies and horror are just much easier to market because they're, they're a single-serving product. It's if you're making a comedy, you have to make it funny. If you're making a horror film, it has to be scary. And so if you succeed at that single thing, you've had success as long as people go to see the movie. And I think that as as African-American filmmakers start to make more money and get bigger budgets to their projects, that the universality of the message gets a little bit wider. And I think those successes are going to be noticed, you know, tremendously and you can also look at you know uh, waiting to exhale you know black director um, black film uh, incredibly successful it was absolutely seen by more than just the black audience and there's every reason to believe that the differences in audience demographic are becoming less and less as long as a, a project is good and so one of the thing that I, I hope is is the aim of, of any filmmaker is to make a good movie. And certainly we've seen a lot of bad movies. And I don't think anybody set out to make a bad movie. But to blame a star for the failure of a film that has a lot of other problems, it's not fair, but it's certainly something that's looked at, something that is considered. Well, that just about does it for this episode, and I, I do encourage everybody to reach out. You know, if you've got questions, concerns, or comments, you can go to our Facebook page, and you can comment below the link to this episode, which will probably go up uh, tonight. And I'd love to, to kind of continue with the conversation, and I've, I'm fascinated with what the view is on these things, because I think that a lot of comic book fans, you know, want to see more diversity. And I, I think that there's a bit of a shock in certain cities um, where we're perhaps a bit more uh, progressive minded that there is backlash when you hear, you know, that when you hear of backlash, I should say, against, you know, the casting of a female Doctor Who or, you know, the idea of um, uh, replacing a, a, a white character with um, a black black actor in the role but it's it's still a thing you know it's it's 2017 and it's it's still a thing people still care about it and we kind of have to break down the the factors that contribute to why it's still a thing by producing much more original content and i think that original content is the key to i think bringing more diverse groups together because I think, you know, I went and saw Metallica last night and one of the things that James Hetfield said was that we don't care, you know, what you look like, uh, where you went to school, where you live, um, who you love, um, how much money you have. Um, we love you because you're our fans. And I think that that we're, we're moving closer, hopefully, 
to a society where that's that's always going to be the case and is at least going to be the rule and not the exception. So uh, I hope you've enjoyed this and look forward to your feedback. Thanks. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole. It's not. Um, you can, If you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.